0: That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. Well, that's what she said.
1: Welcome to That's What She Said conversations with interesting people from the world of sports, music, comedy, and more talking about their lives, careers, successes, and failures. Welcome to the latest edition of That's What She Said with Sarah Spain. Excited for you to hear my interview this week with Brian Koppelman, who I knew and first learned of via Twitter as one of the creators of the Showtime show Billions. But he's a filmmaker, producer, writer, TV series creator, former music business exec um, with some really incredible stories about coming up and starting his work in music and even in comedy with Eddie Murphy, uh, as a high schooler. And then deciding midway through his life that it, he had other passions and dreams and he was what he called himself via a, a book that stood out to him as a shadow artist. Um, his conversations about following curiosity and obsessions into, into the things that you're best at. And then how you choose to define your day and whether it's a success or not. I think you guys are going to love that stuff and the rest of the conversation as well. I really enjoyed talking to him. So here's my conversation with Brian Koppelman.
0: That's what she said.
1: Super excited to welcome in this week's guest, Brian Koppelman, writer, producer, film and TV show creator, podcaster, and according to the research I did for this podcast, at one time also in A&R doing amazing things with awesome people that I didn't even know that part of your life. So I'm so excited to talk about Eddie Murphy and Tracy Chapman and all that stuff, too. Um co-writer of films, including Oceans 13 and Rounders, director of the Emmy Award-winning ESPN 30 for 30 doc, This Is What They Want, and the co-creator, showrunner, executive producer of Billions, which I believe is uh, maybe the biggest thing yet. Bigger, I don't know. What would you say it's the biggest thing yet for you, Brian? In
0: in many ways. I mean, uh, it's great to be here with you, Sarah. Um, yeah, in culture, in terms of cultural impact, in a way, um and the way that the people who love our show love our show and feel like they're a part of it it's it's definitely um bigger than anything else you know you know but but rounders because it was our first movie and because of the life it's had for 20 years now uh, also uh, I feel very connected to the audience uh, of that film and and so yeah uh, certainly, in in most ways, billions is uh, it's a wonderful thing to to do and to have at at this sort of stage in our career. When I say ours, because David Levine and I are partners at this and have been the whole time. So yeah, and and, and I'll, the only other thing I'll say is I don't really think in those terms, which is why it's not that easy to answer it. What I'm I'm really focused on is making the stuff. And that's not like an athlete who says, well, I just go out there and try to only think about hitting the ball. It's that you become, when you do what we do, um, you immerse yourself so heavily in telling these stories. You connect so deeply with your actors. And you kind of live in um, in the ether a little bit where reality meets this thing that that you're creating. And so it's incredibly gratifying when an audience receives it I love when the show's airing and we've made the season and we're not currently shooting and I can interact with folks online about it. That's rewarding. But when I'm in it, as I am now, because we're shooting and writing season four, I kind of tune out the aspect, the career aspect. I'm really only thinking... Um, as a writer and storyteller, does that make sense?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and we're going to get into your interacting with folks about the show because I think that's fascinating too and the way you react to it. Um, yeah, so let's go way back. Uh, you're growing up in New York. I'm, I'm kind of curious because I know your sister hosts a serious show called Just Jenny. So obviously, yeah. creative folks coming out of this family. What kind of family dynamic were you in and what kind of kid were you?
0: Oh, well. <laughs> what kind of kid, as you know, is something you can answer so many different ways. (laughs) Um, Because how do you choose to define us now? I mean, I I tend to separate. I'll say this. One thing that we had in our house, and it's just we were incredibly blessed by this, is two parents who really were focused on us. um, And my sisters and I have two sisters. We um, all have always gotten along very well. I was I don't think you would have necessarily known I would have spent my life doing this work if you knew me as a kid. It was clear uh, I was not a good student. I was one of those people who, you know, I would take the tests and they would all say, "Um, you're too smart to be doing this poorly at school, which is wonderful to hear when you're eight (laughs) years old. And um, but uh, I could only really focus on the stuff that interested me. And so I ended up when I was in high school uh, producing physical acts, managing them. And I was super... One thing that has always sort of defined my approach is I follow my curiosity and my obsessions. And I was that way as a kid too. So if I found a book that I loved, I would sit there and read that book in the boring history class instead of listening to the boring history teacher prattle on. And that didn't endear me to the teacher. But by the end of that day, I knew a lot more than many other people because I was trying to expand my world beyond the limits of stuff that I knew at the time wasn't compelling to me. I had a pretty clear notion, even as a kid, that my path was going to be whatever um, I found and it probably wasn't going to be traditional. I was probably um, not going to be someone who uh, was great in a job where I had to respect um uh, a kind of authority that was just a given, an, an unearned um, authority, the way uh, sometimes teachers in middle school are. You know, they've been there for a long time. They no longer care about inspiring you. Right. That stuff didn't matter. I was super into sports also. I played competitive basketball and competitive tennis. And, nice. um, you know, I was varsity athlete in both of those sports. I wasn't great at either one, but I was good enough to play on competitive teams. And so that was also a good outlet for me um, as a kid.
1: Yeah, and it's an interesting through line. There's been a fair amount of very successful people that have come on my pod who have that kind of – they they were great at getting into whatever they were obsessed about, and they knew well before maybe everybody else did that they should just do that, and it wasn't worth going to school to pretend to do something else instead of just starting. And so you said you started managing bands while you were in high school, right, and booking bands – for a local nightclub, was you were you still in high school when you met Eddie Murphy?
0: I was, but but I would say, and I'm I'm happy to talk about this, but I've talked about it a lot, and I'm you know as a 52 year old, it's it's to go back to when I was 16. Right. But I, I'll do it quickly. And my father, look, there are a couple other advantages I had. One is that, and I like to talk about this now a lot because I think it's un, unstated too often. I mean, you're a woman who's been very successful at at what you do, and I feel that. A generation before you was really almost all male.
1: Mm-hmm. But
0: growing up when I grew up, if you were born, as I was, like a white male to parents who had enough money to send you to college without debt, that's kind of like hitting the lottery in the way the world would treat you. Absolutely. So I had certain advantages stacked in my favor, whereas most people, if they you know screw off at school, there are probably going to be these consequences or they're going to get in a kind of trouble they can't recover from. Like, I could get a bunch of detentions, and then because of the way that I was um, raised, because I had a certain sense of self, because my parents were people who read books, and I had books around my house, I could kind of manage my way through that stuff because things were structured to help me do that in a way. And so that, that's all to say that I did accomplish some things as a young person that seemed sort of remarkable. And at the time, as a kid, I was certainly really proud of myself but I had these advantages. My dad was also in the record business. So I was aware there was something called a record business. Um, right. I, I knew there was um, an outlet to make albums. I grew up going to recording studios. So, yeah, the, the, the great story when I was real young was that Eddie Murphy performed at a local rock club. The very first year he was on SNL as a featured player, I was managing this, this kid who was a folk singer who opened for him at the local club and my poor folk singer got booed off the stage because maybe I wasn't a very good manager booking that gig for him. It really wasn't the perfect audience match. You know, he's singing Cat Stevens songs and they want to hear <laughs> Eddie Murphy do CILL, my landlord. But right. when Eddie took the stage, it was clear to me that I was looking at a superstar. And I snuck backstage after the show and said, like, hey, man, you should be making albums. And then I woke my dad up at two in the morning and I was like, I saw this comedian who was more like a rock star. And then the next day, I got them together. I took the, his, Eddie's manager's card. And yes, it was an industrious thing for a young kid to, to do, but I was well-positioned to do it. Yeah. Um, the, the next thing, which I know is in line with this that you, you mentioned, is when I was in college, and, and this, uh, I will say, I, I w- was less about the circumstance of the, the way I was brought up. Um, when I was at college in the um, late 80s, mid to late 80s, there was this movement um, to get the endowments of colleges to divest from South African corporations or corporations doing business in South Africa, because this is when apartheid was still going on. Mm-hmm. And I was one of the campus leaders of that movement, um, which was an anti-apartheid pro-divestment movement. And in organizing some events, uh, I, was, I was coordinating an all-campus boycott of classes, and a friend of mine said, there's this folk singer you should get to play at, at it. And I went and to a little cafe where Tracy Chapman was performing and she played talking about a revolution and a bunch of songs on the first album. And I got Tracy to play that rally, but then I spent the next two and a half years obsessively following her around and working with her and eventually producing her demos and executive producing the album that went on to sell like 13 million copies. And I did that by my, so that was from my sophomore to my senior year in college. And what that did was it, led me into that business. Um, I guess I'd always thought I would do it. I, I love music, um, and I clearly you know, um, now take advantage of that in doing what I do on Billions because Dave and I pick all the music, and it's really an important part of our show. But when I got into the music business, as it happens to so many people, the thing you pick at 21 might not be the thing that makes you happy at 28 or 29.
1: Right, And I, and that's why I brought it realize... up, actually, because I'm fascinated with having so much success at such a young age at something. And then at 30, having a kid and realizing, even though that stuff, it's not that it came easy to you, but as you said, you had some, you had a leg up. Um, and so instead of just continuing to ride this thing that you've clearly had success at to completely change course.
0: Yeah, it, it, it speaks to that there's, you know, um, people like Emerson talk about this, you know, that you, you have a quiet voice inside you that probably, if you look, can find a way to listen to it, will lead you in the right direction. And for me, what I kept knowing was that secretly I wanted to be a writer, I wanted to be a storyteller, and that I was what Julia Cameron, who wrote The Artist's Way, calls a shadow artist, being around these artists, trying to help them with their songs, trying to help them make their records. More than that, the record, the business itself, being an executive, didn't suit me. I... Um, I didn't feel at all alive as a a person um, in the way that I I wanted to. I wanted to be fully engaged because, as I said before that, my whole life was about following my curiosity and my passion. And when we had our first child, I really realized I wanted to be the kind of person who would come home and and tell my kids that they could be whatever they dreamed of. But I wasn't doing it. And I was a blocked writer. I couldn't write. I was a perfectionist, and I couldn't write. And it was painful. I'd never been a smoker in my life. And at 29, I started smoking cigarettes. I, and I, I was sitting in my office one day, smoking a cigarette, giant stack of demo tapes on my desk, probably eating a cheeseburger. And I realized this isn't who I am. And uh, I, because I, I had this conscious thought that if, if you're a blocked person, if something gets blocked in you, it's a kind of death. And like any other death, there's toxicity associated with it. And that that toxicity would leak. It would spread. And it would spread to the people I love the most because those are the people I'd be with the most. And I would become a bitter father and husband. And so I committed that night. I went to my best friend. I grew up with David Levine and I was like, who had been trying to be a screenwriter. And I said, we should do this together. I I really want to write a script. And Dave said, let's do it together. And shortly thereafter, I walked into a poker club. I was um, a committed card player, but I hadn't found those New York poker clubs. And then um, a guy took me down into this club called the Mayfair club. And when I left, I, I woke Dave, I called him in the middle of the night and I said, uh, I know what the movie is. It's it's about these poker players. And then the two of us committed and wrote rounders. And I immediately felt that Sarah, like the, the moment we started writing the movie and we researched and we did a lot of, um, got, collected a lot of background material and we took a lot of notes. But the moment we started writing two hours a day, every morning after Dave finished bartending and before I went to work, in those two hours, I felt like a different person. I felt alive. I felt like who I was supposed to be. And the greatest effect of that, right, it's lucky and incredible that it led to success. But the two hours alone were the success. I was immediately better at my job because I wasn't angry to be there. I yeah. was not annoyed to be in meetings because I'd spent two hours pursuing this thing that made me feel like the best professional version of myself. And, and it made me better uh, able to be focused and calm at home. And so that's how I was able to shift gears. I'll say one thing that I think is crucial is I didn't quit my job. I didn't put that pressure on myself of, hey, I have nothing. um, So I better be able to write. I was just like, I want to do this thing. So I'm going to find a way. I'm going to say no to everything that's not work, family, or this pursuit. You know, obviously, if it's a friend's birthday and you love them, you go. But I sort of made my my life very simple so that I could support my family, like stay engaged in in what my um, profession was so that. I could do the thing that I wanted to chase um, on my own schedule.
1: So what's fascinating to me is that a, a lot of the reasons that people become shadow artists is a lack of confidence or belief that they have enough talent to be the artists themselves. So, yes. and you know, I worked in PR for, in Hollywood and I was a producer behind the scenes and those things didn't make me feel alive the way being the producer, the creator of the content does being the writer and the performer. So I totally get what you're coming from. But un- how do you make the leap from being a shadow artist, maybe because you fear that you don't have it, to saying, I have it enough to write a screenplay, which I'm assuming you didn't go to school for or didn't have any I didn't. actual teaching
0: well, in? A few answers to that. W- one, the morning pages, which is what Julia Cameron talks about in that book, The Artist's Way, were the thing I started doing when I went to Dave and I said, "Let you know, I want to be a screenwriter. And he was like, let's do it together. He gave me that book. I had given him a the giant with him by Tony Robbins, which I had read and really helped me to figure out what I wanted to do. I didn't know for sure that I had the talent. Nobody knows, right? Before yeah. you're a successful artist, if you're an artist, but there's a very thin line between being an artist and being delusional. You don't really know, but in doing the morning pages, I freed myself from that perfectionism, from wanting to judge myself, and that's the, that's the problem. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Is is that you start to judge yourself? You start to tell yourself, uh, "Hey, why do you think you have the audacity to do this? Like, what makes you think you're special enough to do this?" But in, I taught myself that instead of asking that question, I should just do the work. That if I just did the work, if I could silence, if I could silence the critical voice. For two hours, I could be really critical of myself for the other 22 hours. I could hate myself. I could tell myself I was a fraud and a phony and imposter for 22 out of 24 hours. But if I could make two hours of the day there to chase the dream, then I would protect that time. And so I would do the morning pages. I would take long walks. I would just try my best to put myself in a state of mind. I would say this. I always knew I could write. You know, it's like somebody's fast. My problem is I couldn't finish anything. It was clear to me, I could always write two paragraphs, that if you read them, you would think a professional writer wrote them. I was born able to do that. And by the way, born able to do that, or born loving reading and memorizing movies, and loving music and comedy, right? I threw myself into that stuff, but I had a great facility with language, and I loved language. I always had a huge vocabulary, and not in a show-offy way. I just loved it. I would learn a new word, and I would be fascinated by it. So... I had this huge enthusiasm for it. You know what I mean? Um, And so I I felt like it was possible. But almost every day, I thought um, to myself, at some point in the day, you're a fraud, you're not really an artist, you're someone who can only shepherd artists. But then I would wake up two morning pages and find my way to my desk. Uh. And as long as I got to the desk at 8 in the morning in the storage room that my wife cleared out below our building, one slop sink. And a de- if I could get there, Dave would meet me there and we could do the thing. And, you know, then we were lucky enough that that work paid off. Um, it could easily have not paid off. But as I said, I would have just written the next one then. Then I was in, you know what I mean? Then I was doing mm-hmm. it. Then I found a flow state.
1: Well, what's fascinating is this like fine line between awareness of what's great, which is good, you need that. But if you're too aware of it and you need to be that great to do it at all and then you don't even do it because you're so afraid you're not great, then you never put anything out there. And people who are far worse than you make stuff and have it out in the world and you sit there and look, I'm better than that. But you never do it because you want to be the greatest. It's really hard. It's that self-awareness that sometimes actually serves people to not be too um, – Your
0: insight into this is too great for someone who <laughs> – mu- you must have gone through this. You must feel. Yeah, I mean
1: it. I moved to L.A. to be an actress and a comedian and I – I found a different path that is also very fulfilling, but I, you know, I I, I gave up in part because I just, I I was like, I'm not the best, so I I can't do this unless I'm the best. So, wait, did you
0: stop doing stand up completely?
1: I never did stand up. I did Second City, the whole conservatory, improv. My dream is to be on Saturday Night Live. And so, as much as I love what I'm doing, there's a part of me that's always you know, what if I had just stuck a little bit longer, or I'd done this instead, or I'd believed in myself then. It's not a regret because, it, you know, it, this is, this is clearly something that I've have an aptitude for and that I love. It's just, it's just interesting when I talk to other people about, I think maybe I have a little bit too much of that. I can see greatness. And if I don't have it, then I don't do it at all. And that's too bad. Well, There's that's like of- the
0: Salieri syndrome, right? Where, right. <laughs> you know, when, where you're worried that you're Salieri, not Mozart. And right. listen, the thing you have to realize is none of us are Mozart. So right. if none of us are Mozart, we're all mostly Salieri's, and maybe you know every twenty five years Prince comes along. But basically, <laughs> right. basically we're all some version of just trying our best to capture moments of that magic. You know, well, like I stand up easier at, at when you're 40. older. I
1: think you did stand up at forty.
0: At forty, I did stand up for a year and a half in New York because, like you, I always wanted to see if I could do it, and. I just forced myself. I did a year and a half of it um, 12 years ago, and it was an incredible thing to do. Again, that's from that thing of having to take these risks, of of knowing if it's a fear um, and something that I'm scared uh, will end in a certain kind of humiliating failure, (laughs) but that it's coming from a good place, this place of challenging myself, I have to do it. And so, yeah. yeah, I just started going to open mics, and then I passed at a club, and then another one, and then I started getting up like four or five nights a week. That's and awesome. it was incredibly helpful to do, because I was writing a script, and I was having a really hard time finishing it. There was something about it that wasn't quite cracking open. And as I started thinking about it, my 40th birthday was approaching, I was making lists of, uh, of, of things that... I guess it was journaling. And I just sort of started writing about having never done standup and having spent so much time with comedians and having so many comics as friends. And it really mirrored the thing when I was young and I had a lot of writer friends before I was writing. And I just said like, no, this is the year, man, you got to do it. And if it's humiliating, it's humiliating, but just do it. And we had just written Ocean's 13, which I knew was coming out. And uh, so we were, you know, we'd written a funny movie and I, I just said, I- I'm doing it. And, started doing it. And uh, the first couple times you bomb, it's horrifying. And then after that, it's kind of funny and you learn <laughs> from it. And then, you know, you build five minutes that kind of work and you make these friendships with other comedians. And, um, and i got through a year and a half of it. And I was able to finish that script. And then Dave and I directed that movie with Michael Douglas, this movie, Solitary Man, that um, a lot of people think is our best work. And yeah. so that experience led to something great. But again, the experience alone was worth it, which is my way of saying to you: that there's no reason <laughs> just because you're successful, you shouldn't also do the thing that you think might be even more fulfilling.
1: Yeah, well, we'll see. This is, this podcast is about you, Brian. You you just we're we're uh, this is becoming a therapy session for my for my uh, hopes and dreams. But you just made me think of something. I was listening to your podcast um, the moment with uh, and your interview with Maggie Haberman, and yes. you were trying to. You were trying your dam- damnedest to get her to agree that every once in a while if she did yoga or meditated or just sat for five minutes without working, it might help her work. You were very fascinated by the process of being on an, a never-ending hamster wheel. Do you think that the comedy for you in part just moved your your thinking to a different p- part of your brain and it opened stuff up and that's how you found the door you were looking for?
0: Yes, I, I, I do because – in the same way that, what was it, Rosie Greer used to practice ballet to um, become better at playing football. Right. And, like, I do think that exercising different parts of your creativity are, are helpful, and getting out of your area of expertise is helpful. I sometimes talk about um, John Mellencamp's drummer is this guy of Kenny Aronoff in the heyday of when, when Mellencamp was a superstar. And the first big hit was this song, Hurt So Good, that Mellencamp had. And Kenny is this great technical drummer and John wanted something else on the song. And he said to Kenny, play lefty instead of righty on this song. Kenny's like, how am I going to hit the high at?" And Cougar was like, I want it to feel rougher than that. I want it. I want you to play from a place of discomfort, not fall into just your ordinary, typical groove. And the drum beat is what powers that song. If you go listen to it right now, "Hurts So Good by John Cougar. And that's because this guy was playing in a way that he hadn't grooved. And so anytime you can find, a different way to uh, access a a side of yourself, a creativity, you you have a chance to get someplace pretty special. I do think that.
1: Hey, everybody, don't forget to go to ESPN and Apple Podcasts and subscribe to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain so you always have the latest episode. Don't forget to rate and review it as well and tell all your friends how awesome it is. So let's talk about billions because it's a different process than writing a movie I, i'm um, i've never done either but i'm certain of that is it harder to start writing a hit or keep writing a hit once you have the expectation of greatness
0: i think that they, i don't see them as that different like from the outside they're different but david and i are just telling this story in a longer that the story itself presented to us in a much more novelistic way so we, we understood that the worlds that the show took place in were big enough and expansive enough that we could tell the story for a long time. Um, and then I don't think we feel... We feel an incredible allegiance to our audience, but we don't really feel a pressure of like keeping up a, a hit show. Showtime, incredibly supportive partners, and they really like the show. And, and by now, going into the fourth season, what we're really trying to do is give our actors great stuff to play and tell, find a way to t- tell sort of like entertaining stories that feel very true to these characters and continue to deepen and darken who they are, allow the, the characters they are to come more fully into bloom. And, you know, uh, writing uh, like a long-running show, what's incredible is that all the stuff you're curious about, all the stuff, that obsesses you can find its way into the show. Mm. So if it's a cultural reference, if it's a meme, if it's a book you've read or a movie you've seen, something you've connected to, you have this entire playing field uh, in which to deploy it. And that's the biggest difference and the biggest luxury of doing this.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, when, when when you're writing a show like this, too, because... People are so into it and if you leave an Easter egg, they want you to pay it off or if you make a reference, they want yes. to, they want to study it. You know, in improv, they always say you have to respect your audience's intelligence. You play up and if they don't get the joke, they'll probably find it funny because they know you're being smart. If you play down, it doesn't serve anybody. When, when I'm writing a long form story, I worry about people missing things and then you can overwrite or you're telling them instead of letting them get it by, by writing well. How difficult is it for you to combine this idea of, like, you want to respect your audience's intelligence, but it must be frustrating if you put special things in and they're maybe a little too over the heads of many of the people watching?
0: So, yeah, I I love talking about this. Our audience is really smart. Audience as a group, really smart. And um, David and I never worry about losing them. We we learned that lesson right from the first movie because Rounders is dense and has a language of its own. It's insular. And we just didn't allow ourselves to worry about that. You know, our show rewards second and third viewings. And that's, and our audience is so, you know, as you know, people write these recaps. There are podcasts about the show where, as you said, they catch (laughs) every Easter egg. They, every episode they're talking about, Um, you know, your uh, ESPN's uh, old compatriot, Bill Simmons at the Ringer, they do this podcast and, which we love, they've done a ton of them about it. and. So we 're confident that the audience is engaged enough, and, and this goes to that question you know during the show i 'm on Twitter and i 'm talking to the audience, and if someone has a question about it i 'll answer that question but but the characters on our show are incredibly smart, and the characters know a lot about the world and they think deeply about it and we 're going to let them express themselves and we 're never going to talk down to our audience and if that limits our audience in some way, okay I don't think it does though I think that the people who find what is funny about our show, what's dramatically engaging about our show, um, they tell their friends, like, hang with it. You know, the last two episodes, you'll start to get the rhythm. You'll start to get what's going on.
1: Yeah, and, you know, of course, there are people who will watch it at a surface level and just like it for what I think you've called in the past wealth porn or a variety of reasons that it's compelling, even if you aren't someone who's able to maybe catch every reference. Um, I loved you were doing an interview with someone talking about how there was a writer who for like two years wrote about the show and didn't know any of the Godfather references and finally was yeah. told. And like, see that would infuriate. My thing is, I know you engage with so many people on the show uh, on social media and you're able to react to criticisms and, and you don't get hurt by it when people don't like something or don't get something. A feeling misunderstood is one of my least favorite things in life. Like if I were writing a show and people didn't get it or they criticize something cause they were too dumb to get it, I would be mad at them and you don't seem to be mad.
0: I, well, that person, the Godfather person was like one of the smartest people I know. That was what was so funny about it: this woman who's a great writer. And I did find that hilarious that you could watch the show, which is just peppered with, I mean, just peppered with Godfather references. No, you know, but people get what they get from any kind of art, right? And so if they get something from the emotional clarity of these characters, that's fine. Yeah. Do I want people to get all of it? Of course, is it super satisfying when they do? It's tremendously satisfying when they do. On the other hand, uh, I can go to a ball game with someone and they can be sitting next to me and they can be scoring the game <laughs> and they're going to get a certain level. You know, they would think, they might think, well, I know to write a backwards K down. I know what number six is. Uh, I know what position number six is. And someone else might be at the game like, you know, I'm really glad to put a Shake Shack in here at City Field. <laughs> and, um, uh, They've looked, at put pickles on the hot dogs here, and, oh, is that a home Look, it's a home run. The, the fa- is that a fair <laughs> pool? Like, but, you know, both people can have a really good time at the game is what yeah. I've, I've come to learn. Absolutely. And so that's fine with me. Come and have a good time at the game.
1: Yeah. You know, um I know I might a... lose
0: people with baseball because
1: nobody no, watches no, no. it anymore. No, no, no. I think it's, but, a, but... it's a great example. I hate when people judge it's... other fans because, you know, it, it's it's whatever you're getting out of it. I think it's a great example. Do
0: people still score at games?
1: Yeah, absolutely. They yeah, absolutely do. Um I haven't ever. I know how, but never ever not one well, time. Well, no, when I was in uh when I was in the press box for the Cubs for uh about 5 months, uh way back when, I I would score the games then. Yeah.
0: Right. Yeah. yeah.
1: Um you have to learn a lot about something to do a movie or a show about it and, you know, yes. you said you walked in and and immediately Rounders came to you. There's a lot of darkness and deceit. There's a lot of very interesting and and i'm sure nice but also troubled and 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 uh corrupt people in in the world of of big business and big finance and um what appealed to you about about writing billions about choosing that as the topic
0: sure well dave and i have always been completely fa- first of all we grew up out on long island and saw a lot of these kind of at that time mostly men you know business dudes who talked fast and walked into restaurants like they owned the place and could walk into the kitchen, like in Goodfellas. And we always thought we right away recognized the level of, um, you know, bull that they were throwing and, uh, but loved it, loved the way they talked, you know, loved the way they thought about the world. And then I live in Upper west side of Manhattan, Dave lives in Greenwich, Connecticut. And we watched this incredible wealth, you know, hedge fund people come into the world. I'd say, um, We've always loved people who self self mythologize and the effect that they have. but but here's what I'd say. you don't have to um, admire people what they do for a living to write about them. What you want to do is understand who they are and why they do what they do, and what that means. And so we if as long as we find them compelling and fascinating, or as long as we have a big question, right? So one of the questions that was in our mind, was why qualities like verbal acuity, charisma, wealth, and power started to stand in for true um, qualities of character in our culture. Why did these people start to become um, so loved, so celebrated? And so part of it was for us is like a forensic look at the effect these people have on other people. And so the first season of our show, Bobby Axelrod did a lot of bad things, right. and we told no punches with it, right? I, mean, I don't want to spoil the show, but in the first season, he let somebody die who could have lived longer because it served his ends. He didn't kill that person, but I'll say the, watching people react to that as though it were a bad cool move on his part because he thought through it was really resonant to us in a world that would elect Donald Trump president, and so we are really interested in the effect that this has and the effect these people have. But if you're going to write about them, then you you can't make them look stupid. You can't make them look obviously crass, the people in the world with them. You have to try to write them to the top of what their capability would be so that you're painting a true picture of the effect they have, right? If you were writing a story about a shark and you wanted to understand why sharks are so powerful, you couldn't make the sharks seem like they couldn't swim the fastest. if they can. You couldn't make them seem like they could win all the fights. They can. So you're trying to study the effectiveness of this. At the same time, we looked at prosecutors like Chris Christie and Elliot Spitzer and Rudy Giuliani and the ways in which they used public office for their own personal good. So they would give language to the fact that they were serving the public, but often they were also really serving their own career ambitions. And so we looked at this world and we were like, are there good guys? Are there bad guys? Is everybody gray? What does this world tell us about the culture we're living in now? And so that's what we wanted to put on its feet. That's what we wanted to write about and study. And that's why we can do it for so long, because it remains incredibly fascinating, and it remains something that the whole country is taken by in the real world.
1: Well, and it's it's sort of anti-heroes, which is similar to you know, there's a good side to the people in Rounders. There's a good side to the people in Ocean's 13, but you tend to focus on hustlers, people who are in sort of very high stakes situations and maybe have to compromise morality to get to where they want to be. Is that what's most interesting to you? Would you ever consider writing a, a, a movie or a TV show that's about you know, the interactions between married couples in their thirties or a, a poet who is, you know what I mean? Or is, is what drives you that, that looking into a very complex person? I mean, not we quite like finding worlds bad. that are, we
0: like finding worlds that are fascinating and, and have an insularity that people haven't been able to really sort of get all the way into and then expose those worlds and think about, think about those worlds. I mean, solitary man, which is about a dark character, but that is about a father and a daughter and an ex-wife, and it's it's very much um, an emotional story about a, a guy who is a successful business person, Michael Douglas. But he was married to Susan Sarandon. Jenna Fisher plays his daughter, and Mary Louise Parker plays his current girlfriend. And that is um, a movie that is much more about sort of those those kind of very big personal stakes, but smaller yeah. sort of world stakes. And um, it was incredibly well reviewed, and I'm super proud of that movie. But but part of this is you know Dave and I have always been interested in um, the kind of interactions between people selling something to somebody else and how we're all selling something. And, you know, that from the movies we loved growing up, um, a certain kind of fast-talking, often guy, but in this show what's so rewarding is we have Maggie Siff playing Wendy, who's um, a woman who's every bit as capable at slinging that stuff as they are. We have Asia Kate Dillon, who's gender non-binary person playing Taylor, a gender non-binary character, who is every bit as good at um, speaking that way and slinging that stuff. And it's been great to really expand into looking at all genders and all kinds of people in these roles.
1: Yeah. You, you and Dave have been working together for such a long time and I just was at Elton John's sort of farewell tour show last week. And he thanked his longtime songwriting partner, Bernie Topin, and said that very rarely can you look back on someone's career and they they they've just stuck together and they like each other more than ever. They don't stick together just because the money's coming in. Um, has there been a moment with Dave ever where you said we got to go work with other people or this is this is not going to work?
0: No, I mean we are I mean it's crazy. You know, we were 14 and I had just turned 16 and Dave was 14 and a half when we met and we have been like brothers ever since and you know, listen we haven't talked about the Knicks and they were like the defiant really the most defiant yeah. childhood. <laughs> and that was Pearl and Clyde when I was growing up. And right. so the idea of a backcourt that looked out for each other and passed and hit the cutting person and, you know, played defense together has always been really appealing to me. And um we're just good at working together as a team. We like it. That listen, David has a successful career as a novelist and I have a popular podcast and we do our own stuff but this the 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 central creative thing in our lives is working together to tell these stories
1: and when you do work with other people or when people approach you about working on projects you've obviously had your hand in a lot of successful things people are going to be drawn to you and calling on you to 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 help them with whatever their project is does it make it harder because there is such a tremendous amount of history and trust with you and david to believe in someone else the same way
0: it could, um, but we, you know, we worked very close with Steven Soderbergh on three movies and that was just an incredible collaboration being um, working with somebody that we admired and respected. And we are always working with directors. I and mean, that's the thing about this, the thing that we do is, you know, I'm talking to you now, we're at the set of Axe Capital. And so I'm up in our office where we write. And if I walk down the set of stairs, that's just down the hall, I'm going to walk onto a set with 200 people. And you know, we're all working together to make this show. And those, like Dave and I run this, right? We're the the bosses of it. But the truth is um, the key grip and the gaffer um, and the cinematographer and the episodic director, I mean, we have to work incredibly closely with these people and take their lead and they have to take our lead and we have to share creative ideas. And, you know, uh, Damian Lewis pulls you to the side and you're talking about uh, text or or Maggie Siff, and you were talking about, where the character would stand in the scene. And so you have to be not only willing to collaborate, but you have to love collaborating to do the thing that we do. You have to want to be part of the team. Um, that doesn't mean you can't be the one who wants the ball in the corner to take the final shot, but you have to also be willing to hit the open person to hit the shot. That's just how this works.
1: Well, yeah, but it's fascinating because, you know, when when I was reading the interview you did about reading criticism and listening to the pods and the recaps and interacting with people, you said oftentimes critical reactions even make you feel more confident in how you're doing, not worried about whether you're doing it right. How do you do that? Because there is this sort of through line of a lot of big, successful creators that um, they they don't want to be challenged. They don't want to be criticized, and they can't spin it into a positive. What is it about you, think, that allows you to be more confident uh, when you're criticized? I
0: well, you know, the for I think you probably heard me tell this, but probably the your audience hasn't, which is that the very first two reviews for Rounders were incredibly negative. They came out in Time and Newsweek, and Time and Newsweek were basically in every home in America, and they were on the newsstand six days before any other reviews. There was some snafu where they reviewed it a week early, and they both killed the movie and killed us, and it was our first movie, and I really thought our career was over, and I'm not too proud to say, like, I went into... I happened to go out to my parents' house that weekend with my wife and our young kid at the time, and I saw that review, and I just, like, went into my old kid's room where I grew up, and I, like, went into the fetal position on the floor. But then... (laughs) The next morning I woke up and I realized, and I really did have the thought, well, that has no power over me. I can just go right now to the computer and I can write something. I can still think the same thoughts. That's Amy over there who I love and still loves me. And it just released all, it just took all their power away, you know, because, and, and I think this is crucial. We all think that there are these gatekeepers who know something that And yes, some critics are very edgy. I like reading criticism. I think there are some critics who are really smart about this stuff and can be useful to an audience. But Rounders was also rejected by every agency in Hollywood. The illusionist, the movie Dave and I produced, was rejected by every buyer. And the illusionist ended up doing $100 million. Rounders ended up becoming this beloved movie that people are still doing oral histories of 20 years later. And what that taught me, taught me isn't that I'm always right. I'm wrong all the time. But what it taught me was I, I can't, um, defer to some supposed expert to decide if I'm right. That supposed experts are right no more often than I am. And that to imbue them with power is to, to uh, in a way, give away your own agency. And that's something I'm not willing to do. And so, yeah, will I read something and then find a way to get dispassionate about it and understand it? I will, but I, what I will not do is react out of emotion and let myself get crushed by it.
1: Yeah, it reminds me there's the uh, never accept a no from someone who can't say a yes. So, if that person isn't standing right. between you and what you want or isn't capable of giving you a yes for any of the things that you want, why would you let them give you a no? It, do- it doesn't That's make exactly any sense. That's
0: exactly right. Why yeah. would you let why would you let someone low down on the chain convince you that your what you want to do has no validity? Again, let me say I've been very lucky, you know, I was born in a fortunate circumstance and I was um, born with certain innate skills. I, I mean, I, I know that I was, you know, I was born, I was, uh, you know, I'm someone who can read and remember stuff, but like, so I, that's all true. But, but mostly what it is, is I, I just, once I discovered this idea of committing to a time to do the work and producing the work, I can't let anything interfere with that. I can't let anybody's thoughts, ideas, criticisms, uh, stop me from showing up to produce work either on the page. I mean, it's why like I still write songs. I'm not a good songwriter, but I love writing songs. I do it for myself because it's another way of just saying, I don't have to be perfect. I don't have to be the best songwriter in the world. What I have to do if I want to consider myself someone who writes songs, I have to write songs. And as long as <laughs> exactly. I do, I've had a successful day at that, right? <laughs> so yeah. if you just choose how you're going to define your day – But you could choose to define your day as a success. If you decide what's important to me is I do a half hour of exercise, a half hour of writing, and I have a half hour for myself. And if I do those three things, or I spend a half hour reading to my little kid, I take um, another person for a walk, you can decide that's a successful day. And if you make that decision ahead of time, and then on Monday night you say, Tuesday's going to be successful. If I meditate, take a walk, spend a half hour with my kid, and do a little writing. So if I spend those 90 minutes, that's going to be a successful day. So then you go to work, your boss yells at you, whatever else. Honestly, you've already committed that a successful day means those other things. Hmm. And you can go to bed at night feeling good.
1: That's a great approach. Absolutely. I could talk to you for hours, but I know you have to go because you're on set. But before you go, you have to do the one thing that everybody does, but nobody expects. Didn't expect the kind of Spanish Inquisition. (laughs) Nobody expects. The Spanish Inquisition. It's the Spanish Inquisition. Number one, what's the natural talent you wish you were gifted with?
0: Oh, I wish I could jump well enough to dunk a basketball.
1: Number two, your desert island album, you can only have one.
0: I can only have one?
1: Yes. It's the worst question ever.
0: Yeah, that's a brutal question. Um (laughs) the answer to that question is a cheat, Bob Dylan's biograph.
1: Okay. I'll give it to you. I'm allowing box sets if people are clever enough. That's a
0: box set. Biograph is a box set.
1: Uh, number three, if you could switch lives with someone for a day, who would it be?
0: It would have to be someone in my family so I could stay in my family. So um one of my kids.
1: Just for a day though? You could be you could be anyone for a day.
0: I have a pretty good life.
1: <laughs> I love that. Uh, number four, what's the most scared you've ever been?
0: The most scared I've ever been was um uh, my daughter had a health scare when she was young, and there's nothing close oh. to as scary as that. She was fine though, so it was great. I mean, it was a bad 24 hours, and then everything was wonderful. And yeah. she had an oh yeah, uh, sorry, I can actually answer it later. She had an anaphylactic reaction to uh, peanuts, oh, and no. she, you know, they had the full thing. Emergency room, they weren't sure what was going to happen, and they she pulled through. So that that yeah, was without totally doubt funny. the scariest
1: moment of my life. Uh, number five, what's the most embarrassed you've ever been?
0: Eight years old, I tried to sing. Speaking of Elton John and Bernie Taupin, um, I tried to sing "Crocodile Rock" at a talent show at camp.
1: <laughs> Why were you embarrassed? Acapella,
0: because I did it a- acapella with no. No, it was just it was. I went up and I tried to. You know the part of "Crocodile Rock" where, like la, you know the "la las Yeah, yes, was, of course. When you're eight years old, wanting to play basketball at camp, and you go up and <laughs> sing those high "la la la"s for all the older kids at camp. You realize very quickly you've made a terrible, terrible miscalculation.
1: Well, if that's your most embarrassing, you're doing alright. I, I, uh, got thrust into a... Boxing ring in East L.A. when I first moved there as a promotional model wearing a dress made of bathing suit material. I was supposed to be Latina, but they ran out of Latina promo models. So I was about six inches taller than all the actual Latina models. The person who was supposed to sing the national anthem didn't show up. So my promotional modeling agent said, you have singing on your resume. Go on up there. So I'm in a boxing ring where everyone speaks Spanish. I start singing without a starting note or any accompaniment. Acapella. I start too high. (laughs) And then Ah. I get... <laughs> and, then I, and then it's just a joke, and then I'm trying not to disrespect our national anthem, and they're kind of trying to help me sing it. <laughs> anyway, uh, it's worse than crocodile oh rock.
0: You pulled the you pulled the Fergie.
1: Yeah. Oh well. Did you see the clip, by the way, of the Warriors dancing to the remix? I did. I did. holy cow! Brutal. I so brutal. Watched it probably so ten brutal. times. Uh, number six. What would you consider your biggest failure?
0: The movie Runner Runner. Why is that? Because it's terrible. We couldn't make it better. It was really dispiriting. Um, So it
1: wasn't just poorly received. It was actually bad.
0: I felt it was bad, yeah.
1: Oh, that's no good. Uh, Number seven, what habit or quality do you think has contributed most to your success?
0: Oh, really? Mm -hmm. What habit or quality has contributed most to my success? Probably... The willingness to take creative risks.
1: Yeah. It's a tough one. Um, number eight, have you ever been in a fist fight? Yes. And?
0: Well, when I was young, I, I would I got in fights sometimes. When I was like up until, I haven't been in a fist fight since I, probably 14 maybe.
1: All right. Were you usually on the giving or receiving end?
0: I mostly was good at talking my way out of them by being funny. Right. But well you were an athlete, um, so
1: you had you know athleticism on your side.
0: Yes. No, but I was not like an athlete in the way I was I was, you know, good at I had good hand eye.
1: You were that wily. You weren't you weren't yeah. uh, strong. Yes. Uh number nine, what's the thing about yourself you'd most like to improve? Physical conditioning. That seems easy enough.
0: It is. I'm working on it. Always working on it.
1: Is that on your, whether your day was a success list?
0: Yeah, for sure. I do stuff now. I mean, I'm, yeah, I, uh, I'm better at it, but yes, that always
1: number 10, what three words would you most hope people would use to describe you?
0: A good father.
1: Hmm. That's good. And finally the bonus, who would you recommend I have on this podcast?
0: Ooh, who should you have on the podcast?
1: Yeah. Who's a good person should I talk to? uh,
0: Well, my partner, David Levine, would be great, but you've just done the whole billions uh, thing. I would say this. uh, Have you had Bomani on? I have.
1: Bomani's Bomani's
0: a really great podcast.
1: Really interesting. Yeah, for sure.
0: And uh, maybe General David Petraeus would be good for you to talk to. Did you just have him on? No, I had Stanley McChrystal on. Oh, that's right. But I'm going slightly to the right of that with or left of it to portray us.
1: Yeah. Awesome. Hey, thanks so much for giving me this time. I really enjoyed talking to you.
0: Sure, thanks, Sarah. Me too. Be well. Oh, and another thing.
1: This week's That's What She Read is based off uh the conversation you just listened to with Brian. If you have not read The Artist Way, which I think is going on almost thirty years now of being this sort of uh textbook that artists and writers and creative people use, um it it is uh it is definitely worth your read as a full book but if you just want a little bit of rumination on that book and on the artist's uh follow-up it's never too late again which is sort of the idea for readers in late middle age many of whom have just retired or maybe wanting to switch uh finding themselves with free time and taking the foundations of the artist way to try the artistic and creative endeavors that they always dreamed of in their professions before retirement or before making a pivot. Um, both of those are covered. It's a really great story from The New Yorker back in 2016. It's called The Artist's Way in an Age of Self-Promotion by Carrie Batten, i um, I'd recommend it. It's a really good read, and it kind of gives you a taste of The Artist's Way in case you want to get that book in, in its entirety, um, and also the follow-up book for my listeners who maybe are a little bit older, maybe looking to make a change. Uh, thanks, as always, for lasting about an hour with me.
0: That's what she said.